0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science providing structured insights informed by science and inspired for practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Parenting Podcast. Um, so child behavior, how do we understand it? How do we know it? And how do we recognize it? Here to sort of talk to us about that today is Danielle Dick, who is a tenured professor of the psychiatry at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, where she served as an inaugural director of the Rutgers Addiction Research at the Brain Health Institute and holds a Greg Brown Endowed Chair at Neuroscience. How are you going today, Danielle? Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. It's really good for you to take the time to be able to talk about child behavior and hopefully help us understand it better.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I am both a researcher, but also a parent. And the research was so helpful in my own parenting journey that one of the things I'm really passionate about is that we need to do more to get the science out to people who can use it.
0: Okay. Well, um, so what got you into talking about child behavior and sort of understanding it in a sort of research sense.
1: Yeah, so my own work is really on genetic and environmental influences on behavioral outcomes with a big focus on substance use and mental health outcomes in children all the way through to adults. And so I do everything from lead big gene identification projects where we're trying to understand the biology of why some people are more at risk for certain types of challenges than others. And then I do a lot of longitudinal studies of kids, where we're looking at what do kids who carry different genetic predispositions look like as they're growing up, and then what kinds of environments either exacerbate risk, make things worse, or reduce risk, make things better. And then ultimately, what we try to do is use all of that for developing better prevention and intervention. And when I became a parent, I found myself raising the challenging child that I study. Highly impulsive, highly emotional, and I found the research so helpful. But I looked around and saw so many other parents My amazing friends who were accomplished in so many ways, and yet they were constantly doubting themselves and feeling like if their child was struggling, what were they doing wrong or what was wrong with their child? And I realized that a lot of the parenting messages that were out there in the mainstream media really didn't match the research. And so that's what led me to um, write my own book, The Child Code, which came out in uh, September from Penguin Random House and uh, to do more to try and get the research out to parents so that they could use it as well.
0: It's, that's an amazing achievement, honestly, to put something that's researched and studied and make it in sort of a terminology that people would normally talk about, people would normally hear rather than it just be like statistics thrown in there. It's something that child, people, parents would love to read or would want to read.
1: One of my favorite comments that I got from a neighbor who had gotten one of the first copies of the book when I got some pre-early copies, and she bumped into me a couple days later and said, "'I'm reading your book, and it's really good.'" And I said, you sound so surprised. And she said, well, I just know you as this accomplished scientist, but when I read your book, it's like we're having a glass of wine or a cup of coffee and talking about (laughs) our kids. And I said, absolutely, that's how I want it to be, right? It's about science translated into the everyday things that we're dealing with in the trenches as parents and um, written in a much more accessible and I hope fun, uh,
0: fun way. Oh, that sounds, that sounds like an amazing accomplishment in itself. Um, so to talk, we sort of start off the segment, the whole episode with a little get to know you. So okay. with this segment, it's sort of the first thing that you hear or that you think of when you hear these keywords. Okay. So the first one is book.
1: Uh, I wrote one, (laughs) the child coaches. So yes, I actually love writing. So my world has been consumed a lot with my own book over uh, this last year or so.
0: See, I love when you when it's like self promotion in it. It's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) How about movie?
1: Well, obviously, the new Top Gun movie, uh, both because it's so fun, but also my dad was a fighter pilot. My brother is a fighter pilot. So I have grown up in that world of fighter pilots. So in addition to being a child of the 80s when the first one came out, uh, this one is reminiscent of my childhood.
0: Wow, that's incredible. Um, how about podcasts?
1: I love podcasts. Um, This American Life is one of my favorites.
0: I love stories, stories about people. Okay, perfect. Uh, How about your famous role model?
1: Someone that I admire deeply is Emily Oster. Maybe she's not as famous to everyone out there, but she is a professor at Brown, an economics professor, and she has written now three uh, best-selling books for parents and she has her own column and she does a lot in the press and it's basically about how you translate data for parents and she's done it really successfully and so she's someone that I definitely admire for
0: leading the way on that front. Wow, that's that's amazing. Uh, How about a course that you've completed?
1: Oh, I feel like I've completed so many courses, obviously, in the context of doing a PhD and then a postdoc. So, yes, I basically feel like um, the running joke in my family is that I went to college and never left. So, I've probably (laughs) taken more courses in genetics and child behavior and psychology um, than most people would care to. But uh, I, I love being a professor in part because there's always more to learn and you have the opportunity to
0: sit in on all kinds of interesting classes. Wow. That's, that's a pretty cool one. That's a pretty cool one. (laughs) I think that is, um, that's definitely my aim as well. Um, So going into talking about the topic that we've invited you here to do today, we know that there is a lot of different definitions for different people, but what, in your opinion, do you think the definition of parenting is?
1: It's such a great question. And it perhaps seems an ironic thing for someone who studies child development to say, but I actually hate the word parenting, because Mm -hmm. it implies that it's all about the parent, that it's all about what we are doing that's shaping our children, when actually what the research shows is that our kids shape us, as much as in fact perhaps even more than we shape our ch- our kids so it's actually parenting is really about the interaction between the child and the parent and each of their unique temperaments and so that's why i actually dislike the word parent parenting because it's misleading i think it doesn't fully take into account that what it actually is is a relationship between the child and the parent and each combination of different kids and different parents is unique. So the best parenting is actually flexible parenting. It's helping your each of your unique children appreciate their strengths and learn to overcome things that might be
0: challenges and
1: learn skills that don't naturally come to them.
0: Well, that's, you're not actually the first person to have, to feel like parenting is not the right word to describe it. There have been a lot of, yeah, there've been a few guests, honestly, that have sort of said that, something similar like that to me on their definition. So yeah, you're definitely not the only one to think that. And it is a very common um, answer. (laughs) So what do you think expectant parents need to be aware of in their transition to parenthood?
1: So one of the things that is a central theme in my book and what really led me to write a book is that One of the things that I think parents don't think much about is the role of their kids' genes in their development. And so, you know, maybe when we're pregnant, we'll do a genetic test or something, but really we're so consumed with all of the other things, right? Parenting classes and cribs to uh, shop for and what are the best baby bottles and all the other accessories and things. And I think that sometimes what that can do is plant this idea in our head of, oh, there's all the things that we have to do to shape our kids. And the piece that is not really out there a lot in mainstream parenting is really just how much of our kids' growth and development and behavior is shaped by their genes. And so and the reason I think that this is so important, and really, as an aside, the reason I think it's been ignored is because many parents feel like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? I can't change their genes. But I think by failing to acknowledge that so much of how well your baby sleeps, how well your baby eats, and then as they get older, you know, are they a baby who cries a lot or soothes easily? Are they a child who's really impulsive or really anxious? or very agreeable and go with the flow. So much of that is really encoded by their own unique little genetic code. And if we don't recognize that, then we actually make it harder on ourselves because we feel like one, it's all on our shoulders and we have to be you know, the perfect parents to mold our kids into the little people we want them to be. And secondly, Oftentimes, it can mean that we're trying to parent in the way we think should be best, you know, maybe the way we were parented or the way that's different than the way we were parented or the way your best friend or your mother-in-law, you know, thinks you should parent. But really, what we want to do is parent flexibly to each individual child and figure out, okay, based on that child's temperament, what's going to work best for them and conversely what actually might be create more challenges at home based on that child's temperament
0: i think that's really interesting to sort of um that it comes into play you don't actually think about the genes and how much it actually impacts um not only the child but how you would parent or um discipline the child as well because it may not be something that they can control as well absolutely
1: and you raise such an important point too which is of course it's not just our kids who have their own dispositions and temperaments. Of course, we all are unique in our own, you know, what we often call as adults personalities, you know, our dispositions and temperaments, which is why, you know, your interactions with your child and the buttons that they push or, you know, that aren't a big deal to you can vary even between the two parents, depending on their dispositions. And so, you know, it's, um, it's both a matter of, recognizing what your child's temperament is, but also how that interacts with your own temperament. And so, for example, there can be times when there's a really natural goodness of fit. So you have an extroverted parent and an extroverted child, and the parent's taking the child out to all these places, and they're doing fun things together, and it's lots of people and activities, and it's a great fit, and parenting just feels, quote-unquote, easy. But you can imagine if you have that same extroverted parent, with a much more introverted child, which was the situation I was in, then I was planning all these quote unquote fun activities on Saturday mornings for my child. And, you know, we'd be having breakfast and I'd say, guess what? Today we're going to go to the park with this person, this person, this person. You remember we met them and them and them. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, he would, you know, like wipe the cereal bowl off the table and say, I'm not going. Or, you know, he'd be pulling on his shoes and say, "That's it, I'm not going and throw the shoe. And what I realized is, oh, what seemed like a fun day to me for his disposition was totally overwhelming. It was like throwing him into the deep end of the pool. He just didn't have the skills. And he his little brain couldn't say, mom, I feel really anxious about the idea of being with all of these people I don't know. You know, instead, he just throws the shoe. And so, you know, that's how I think that really understanding your kid's disposition and your disposition can allow you to get in front of these things. So for us as parents to not always be in reactive mode, we can actually be proactive about how to avoid some of the stressors that sometimes come up in our families.
0: Mm -hmm. And with that, I know that labeling children's behaviors can sort of be problematic as sort of like you say, consider a child's development normal or a normal child, for example. But how would you define children's behavioral problems or was that would that be an okay term to sort of even mention yes it's a
1: great question and it's one i get a lot from parents who are essentially wondering is my child just impulsive or do they have adhd you know Mm -hmm. are they just a kind of anxious child or is this anxiety and i actually need to do something about it and the reason it's so hard to tell is that kids' behavior all falls on a bell curve. It's that sort of normal distribution where you have some folks are going to be very high and some folks are going to be very low and lots of folks kind of in the middle. And so there is no clear cutoff for what defines behavior problems or a clinical diagnosis. We essentially impose a cutoff through this you know, checklist of different questions that clinicians would ask to say, okay, they either do or don't meet diagnostic criteria. But the bottom line is that's pretty arbitrary. And we've even changed our criteria over time. And so I think that it's actually, you know, is far more important to think about, is the behavior causing impairment? Is it causing problems in the child's life, either at home or at school or with their peers? And if it's causing challenges, then you want to do something about it. And that's, I think, a much more important question to ask than, is this a problem behavior or does this meet criteria for a disorder like anxiety or ADHD or depression? It's really hard to make that, you know, kind of arbitrary cutoff or to figure out that decision point. It's much easier to say, is this causing problems in my child's life? If so, it's always a good idea to seek help. Mm -hmm.
0: And why do you think that the curve or the cutoff point has sort of changed over time? It's because
1: there really is no clear, you know, disorder, not disorder line. It's really, I think, because it all falls on a bell curve. And so what we consider problematic or not, you know, changes with culture, with the time. Obviously, diagnoses have come in and out of our clinical, you know, um, diagnostic manuals across time. I mean, of course, there was a time when homosexuality was considered, you know, a clinical disorder. I mean, we don't think that anymore. There were times when, you know, then when new things have come in. And so, you know, even in the realm of addiction, now we're talking about social media and thinking about that in a way that we weren't thinking about that. That wasn't even on the table, you know, 20 plus years ago. And so that's why I think, you know, these are phenomenon that are influenced by our environments, our cultures, our times. But at the same time, these sort of normal bell-shaped distributions of kids who differ in their impulsivity, their anxiety, their fearfulness, you know, weight, height, all of these kinds of, you know, things have shown this bell curve distribution throughout all of human history. Um, Just kind of where we impose the cutoff has shifted around a little bit.
0: So basically, like our understanding of a lot of terms of between the two definitions of just having anxiety or actually being an anxious person, is that sort of something that has like just the terms of it or the understanding of it has it improved in your opinion over time or has it just gotten oh i'm i'm just anxious i'm just i have anxiety because like i know even as adults you're sort of saying oh i have anxiety but you're not an anxious person you just have a moment of anxiety yes
1: and so one of the things that i think has changed and improved is our recognition and awareness of mental health challenges, and our willingness to talk about it, and you know, to share stories, we're destigmatizing it. I think that's incredibly important. Um, coming along with that, sometimes is this confusion of, okay, well, then what is anxiety? And you know, it, it doesn't help that there's obviously commercials that talk about, you know. Do you have an anxiety disorder? It's a chemical imbalance in the brain. It makes it sound like it's a thing that you either have or you don't have, when really we all vary continuously. And that's why I try and do a lot of awareness about like, you know, it's less about asking, do I have a disorder or not have a disorder? You kind of like when you're a parent, you have to make a decision about, is my child sick enough to take them into the doctor, right? You kind of, you know, you sort of have your things that you think through, oh, well, you know, like, do they seem really sick? Does this seem kind of like things I've seen before? Do they seem to be getting better on their own? Or is this like pretty extreme? Or is this really dragging on? Or is this something that I don't recognize or I don't know how to handle? Those might be times when you go in to see the doctor. And, you know, as parents, we're having to make those assessments with our kids' behavior all the time too, right? And so it's like, you know, and we tend to look for things like, is it a sudden change? You know, it looks like it's very different from the way that the child has um, been previously. Is it something that has been prolonged? It's essentially continuing. So this whole, was it a little bout of anxiety? You know, everybody feels, Many most people feel anxious before a big exam or something coming up, or is this really something that's dragging on for some period of time that is making the parent concerned Um, or maybe the level of anxiety is what's making the parent concerned my rule of thumb is always if you are concerned then it's always worth reaching out to seek help the people that i know who are most willing and most quick to reach out for help are actually other psychologists and psychiatrists because we realize Parenting is hard, and even when you're in this field, it can be hard to make these kind of value judgments about, you know, ah, is you know, what's going on with my child? How worried should I be? And so it's always great to bounce it off other professionals and to talk to other folks who can help you think that through.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you think a children's behavioral problem influence our own parenting? Yes.
1: So one of the things that I think is most fascinating from studies of parents and children across time where you can look at is the child's behavior influencing future parenting and how much is the parenting influencing future child behavior? And the way we usually think about it is Our parenting is influencing our kids' behavior, right? We're shaping them. But in fact, what has been found in countless studies from cultures all around the world is that the opposite direction of effect is much stronger. Our kids' behavior shapes our parenting as we react to them. And so, you know, interestingly and perhaps counterintuitively, really challenging children Often there's a decrease in like with teenagers and whatnot in parental monitoring, because essentially kids start wearing you down, you know, and uh, you might start off at the same level of, you know, wanting to know where your kids are and what they're doing. But kids that can be super challenging, whew, they exhaust their parents and, you know, it actually you will see that that change in response to the child's behavior. And you see that across a number of um of uh, of studies, and this isn't always, you know, a bad thing per se. And so, one of the places that this plays out and causes a lot of confusion is that you know we see a child misbehaving, you know, the child throwing a temper tantrum at the store or in church or whatnot, and we see the parent responding in a way that we might think, "Huh, they're not taking that seriously enough." You know, I mean, and I know that's one of the things that parents always think they're being judged when their child is acting out. And so we feel this need to sort of clamp down on the bad, quote unquote, behavior, right, to stop that misbehaving uh, behavior. And so when we see a parent that doesn't really seem to be responding in in a sufficient way, we think, oh, permissive parenting. That's why that child is acting out, that they are not strict enough. There's not enough rules or discipline in that house. Well, what they have found in studies across time is that most parents kind of start out with you know, uh, similar levels of when child misses behaves, there should be consequences. And what you find is that for kids who are highly emotional, that that kind of standard toolbox of, you know, responding with kind of clamping down right in a harsh way actually makes the behavior worse because you're taking a child who's easily frustrated and you're getting upset with them. And of course, that can then further spin them up. It doesn't make the behavior better in the moment. And so this is an example of how people kind of misunderstand and think like, oh, Parent is too permissive and that's why the child's acting out. But actually what we find is that that is a, a good way to respond to children. And parents learn that over time when they have really volatile, emotional children that actually what you want to do is, is to try and you know, de-escalate it in the moment to calm them down. That's not the time to clamp down on the behavior. So So yes, it turns out our kids shape us even more than we shape our
0: kids. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's actually really amazing. It's actually something really that I've noticed with my friends' kids and with kids that I've seen is that how much judgment there is within sort of disciplining children. And you know, each parent has their own way of handling their kids depending on how their child is, but there's so much societal judgment as to or you're not telling them off enough, you're not getting upset with them. How do you handle that when it comes to a child that is overly emotional or does sort of um, throw a tantrum out in public? How do you sort of combat that? Absolutely.
1: And that can be one of the hardest things for parents. And honestly, this is why I like talking about and really getting the word out about how much of kids' behavior is genetically influenced, because I really hope that it will contribute to decreased judgment of other parents. Um, And the reality is that each of our kids are different. And so the parenting strategies that work best for different types of kids, you know, it is different. There is no one best way to parent. Um, Even, you know, when you have multiple kids with the same parents, it's a running joke in our field that everyone is an environmentalist until they have their second child. And then they realize, wait, I'm doing the same things. And this one's turning out totally differently. So you even start to realize, you know, often if you have kids with different temperaments that, wow, you actually have to modify your parenting. So the ways that I deal with, you know, that, that voice in my head about like other parents are judging me is um, one of the things is I really come at it from the hey, I parent with science on my side. And kind of like preparing for an interview, if you're going to go into, you know, a family reunion or a family get together and you think there's going to be some commentary, say, from family members about how you're going to handle, you know, a child who you know is likely or more prone to get upset or get worked up, um, then It's always good to go in with something that you're going to say in response that is comfortable for you. Right. And mine was always, you know, when they'd say, oh, well, you really should fill in the blank with whatever favorite parenting advice you get. It was always thanks. I've got this. I like to parent with the science. Right. This is. And so that's something that, you know, you can kind of find your own phrase. The other piece is that, and I love this, I I heard someone say it once, and I was like, this is such a great idea. Very often we are imagining what other parents are thinking. You know, so when our child is throwing a fit in Target or in the grocery store, then we are imagining that all the other parents are looking at us and judging us. And they're saying, We actually have no idea what other people are thinking. So why not instead think Other parents are like, oh, I've been there. You know, I feel your pain, right? I'm with you. And so if we're going to be imagining it anyways, let's imagine other people being supportive of us because parenting is hard. And I hope that as parents too, we also can embrace more of that culture of supporting one another and recognizing that all of our kids are different. We're all doing the best we can. And in fact, what's best for you and your kids might not be working for somebody else and their kids. And they're probably figuring out the system that's best for their family.
0: No, I think that's that's really amazing. And I think that's a really positive spin on how your brain sort of works about people, other people's judgment, like having that positivity being like, oh, yeah, they're doing, they're doing such a good thing. Like, even if you feel like they're saying something negative, taking that spin mentally being like, okay, no, what if they're saying something positive about Absolutely. it? Yeah. So when do children begin to exhibit behavior problems? does it start off as soon as they are born or is it something that can sort of come out gradually?
1: Well, some babies are certainly harder than others. You know, they are more colicky. They have more trouble sleeping or eating or whatnot. But when we think about um, temperamental characteristics, when do they sort of start to show up and actually reflect what are going to be more stable characteristics that are reflective of the child's temperament and personality, that usually starts around two to three. And so, you know, usually around three on, you start to see and you can look around, you know, at other children that um, that you're around as well. And to know, wow, my child is, you know, higher on impulsivity, or my child's actually really good at self-regulation, or my child is really emotional, um, or my child is more introverted, right? They hide behind my legs as opposed to other children who will run right up to strangers and introduce themselves. And so actually in my book, I talk about three big genetically influenced temperamental dimensions, and they are extroversion, um, emotionality and what we sometimes call effortful control or self-control, and um, those are essentially dimensions that show up in you know studies that have been done all around the world. And they make a big where your child falls on each of those makes a big difference in kind of your day to day um, life with your child. And the other important thing is that by realizing where your child falls on those things. Right. If you have a more impulsive child versus one with more self-regulation, if you have a more extroverted or introverted child, if you have a child who's really emotional or one that's go with the flow. There's actually different parenting strategies that can work better or worse for kids, depending on their temperamental style. And so by understanding our kids temperament, which, again, will start to show up and really solidify kind of, you know, around three or so. But the more time you spend with your child, the more you start to realize, oh, were they just having an anxious day because that dog was, you know, growling at them and they were a little scary? Or is this a child who runs, you know, when they see a dog, they hide when there's new people coming? You know, is it more of a temperamental characteristic as opposed to just sort of in the moment? um, You know, all of us are a little impulsive or a little anxious or a little fearful or whatnot at different times. Um, so, so the more time we spend with our kids, the more we can figure it out. And, um, and then importantly, uh, you know, and that's again, sort of why I wrote the book is we don't have, we can make it easier on ourselves by figuring out what things are going to work best for kids with different temperament styles.
0: Mm-hmm. How, how do you have a conversation with, say you have multiple children, and there are multiple different ways that their temperaments are. So you discipline them in different ways. How do you have a conversation with the other kids on the different forms of discipline? It's
1: a great question because there is nothing that siblings love more than to say that's not fair, right? Mm. And (laughs) so I think there's a couple things to think about here. One is that It is a great way to teach kids about empathy, about we're all different. And so we all have different needs. And so if, for example, one child was struggling with their math, you wouldn't make both kids have tutoring in math class, right? You would essentially put in place something for that one child that was struggling. And similarly, if one of your kids you know, loved a particular sport, you're probably not going to make all of the kids do that sport. So we, in fact, tailor our parenting to our kids all the time. And this is just another way that we do that, that we're essentially responding to the different needs of different kids and you can have that conversation with kids and it doesn't mean that they'll never scream that's not fair again but hopefully what it does is it starts to plant the seeds of them understanding hey we are all different and our parents are responding to each of our needs and i think the example of things like you know well if your you know sibling wanted to take horseback riding and you didn't, should I make you do horseback riding too? Because everything has to be fair in our house, you know, or if they had to go to music, uh, wanted to do music lessons, and you didn't, would you have to do music lessons too? Because everything's the same in our house. And kids can kind of start to get that sort of uh, analogy. Mm -hmm.
0: And yeah, I think that's really, it's really interesting, like, learning about the different temperaments. I mean, you hear about it with adults and you know that everyone has a different way of doing things but with kids it is a new it is a new concept to sort of be talking about normally in sort of understanding that they're also going through that stage of figuring out where they where they lie themselves and empathy is such a big part of helping children understand all the way till adulthood that they're that everyone is different. And that's such a great way at the beginning as well. You know,
1: it's a default for us to assume that other people's brains work the way ours do. It's the only way we know of being in the world. And so we look at other humans and think, well, they must think about things the same way. But in fact, just like we can see all of our amazing differences on the outside, you know, we, we look different in so many different ways and our brains are wired differently. And that impacts all of these kind of behavioral and temperamental characteristics about how we move through the world as well. And so, you know, I try and remind folks of that, that just as, as we can see so many beautiful differences There's actually just as many, even more really interesting differences in the way that people think about things and, you know, what their their needs are, what their strengths are, what their challenges are and how they view the world. And uh, and so learning that and getting to know your child in that way is, I think, one of the, the greatest gifts we can give our children is to help them understand their unique strengths and accentuate those strengths, and then help them learn the skills for the things that don't come naturally to them. For example, the child that has challenges with emotional or behavioral Mm self-regulation.
0: So based on your book, and I think you've sort of brushed on this a little earlier as well, you talked about how gene-environment interactions influence a child's behavior. Can you sort of tell us more about that and what that gene-environment interaction means.
1: Absolutely. So the point I've been talking about is how important our kids' genes are in influencing their behavior. But of course, genes are not destiny, right? Our DNA is not destiny. There is no gene for temper tantrums or gene for anxiety. Instead, you know, our genes, thousands of them influence the way our brains are wired, which influences then the way we move through the world, these temperamental characteristics. But the environment plays a big role as well, too. And so one of the interesting things about our kids' genes, the way they're wired, is that it actually influences their environments. And so, for example... uh, Babies that are happy and like to be you know, held and cuddled, they're much more likely to have people pick them up and coo at them and smile at them and talk to them. You know, um, nobody wants to hold a crying, colicky baby, even, even the parents after a little while, right? So that's an early example of how a child's temperament, their wiring is influencing essentially the responses that they're evoking from the world. And um, and then next you can think about the way that we react to our environments differs based on the way that we're wired. And so, for example, and that's you know true of kids and adults. My my husband and I can walk outside at the same time on the same day, and I think it's freezing, and he thinks it feels great outside. Exact same objective environment. And we're experiencing it very differently based on the way that we're wiring, that we're wired. And you can also think about, you know, you might be um, at a cocktail party or a work party and you and a friend meet someone over the, you know, the essentially, appetizer table, and you have a conversation, and you walk away, and your friend is like, "Oh, that person drives me crazy," and you're like, "Oh, I think they're great." Like, and so, same person, same conversation, and you have a totally different response to them. So, our our genes actually can influence. The, the responses we get from the environment, the way that we then receive the environment, the way we react to it. And then as we get older, our temperaments also influence the environments that we seek out. Um, so, you know, little kids are usually along for the ride with us, but they can influence what environments we put them in by their behavior. So, If you take your child to library reading hour and they run around the whole time and pull books off the shelves and the other parents are giving you dirty looks, you're probably not going to keep taking them back to the library. Um, but as you get older, that same impulsive, risk-taking teenager now might be selecting other impulsive friends. They might want to go to parties instead of hang out at the house with you know one close friend. So our genes and our environments are absolutely tangled together. You can't really separate them. And but the other piece is that as a parent, so when we think about our role as parents, I. Th- Talk about it as kind of a dial, the volume button on on an old radio where, you know, we can tune things up or down. And so essentially you might have a child who is not naturally disposed to having a lot of self-control, but you help teach them strategies and you, you know, essentially give them skills to make their self-control better. Right. Or you might have a very introverted child you're probably never going to have convert that child, right? Or teach them to be somebody who wants to be the center of attention at a party. But what you can do is help them with social skills and how you meet folks and how you feel more comfortable with that so that when they are at the work party, they can at least make do, right? Though it might not be their natural choice. And so we can essentially, you know, fine-tune dispositions. We can either tune them up or tone them down as um, through the environmental interactions. Um, so our environments can essentially change how much kids' dispositions get expressed as well. So it's not just the, their genes that are important. You know, our environments and the, the environments we provide as parents also play a really important role there.
0: hmm Oh, that's that's amazing. I'd never thought about how important the environment is. Like, I mean, that example you said at the beginning about you, you and your husband feeling two different uh, feelings of the weather as you come outside of the same same environment, but totally different understanding of it or reaction to it. And that does. I never thought about it playing a huge role on. I mean, even children, just their social skills, and for example. Um, yes, yeah, so, but what are the long term effects of behavioral problems in children?
1: Yeah, this is why it's so important to. Get help early when you see challenges in your child, because essentially what can happen, and this is related to these gene environment feedback loops we were just talking about. If a child is struggling, if they are having emotional or behavioral outbursts, then what it can do is essentially then lead to this cycle of negative feedback from the world. It can cause problems at home, right? Parents are getting mad at them all the time. It can cause problems at school. Teachers are constantly frustrated with them. Uh, It can cause problems with their peers, right? Their friends might not want to sit next to them during story time because they're getting in trouble or they might not want to play with them. And so what can happen is now it starts to create these challenges throughout their life, which, you know, in these different arenas, And that can then feed back and hurt a child's self-esteem, and they can think, no one likes me, I'm not smart, right? My parents are mad at me all the time. And so it can create these really hard feedback loops. And I remember when my son struggled with ADHD, and when he was young, at some point, him coming home from school and saying exactly that, you know, my teacher doesn't like me, my friends don't like me. And I was like, you know what? we're going to, you know, we can fix this. We can, you know, I'm going to help you. We're going to work on this. You know, he's doing amazing now. But it was that seeing firsthand how things that at first you're just like, oh, he's a little impulsive, oh, he's a little emotional. It's so hard, you know, even as a parent in this field to know exactly when, you know, when to seek help and, you know, when is it a problem? And that's why I always say, if it's causing challenges, at home, at school or with peers, then it's always good to get help early um, because you can put skills in place because you don't want those feedback loops to essentially start building upon themselves and negatively impacting your child's self-esteem and growth and, and essentially their, their vision of themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are some signs that you should seek? Like, rather than it just being, okay, they're a little anxious for today, how do you sort of tell yourself, okay, this is a lot more than what I was thinking it originally was. So what's that point that you sort of realize that you do need to go get external help somewhere?
1: So there's some rules of thumb, but there is no, here is the tipping point. Okay. And I can't tell you how many parents I talk to that say, now I look back and I realized I should have gotten help when, right? I should have caught it earlier. And what I always tell those parents is everyone I talk to looks back and thinks, I should have done it earlier, because it's very hard in the moment to know that exact point. So first of all, as parents, you know, if you are in that situation, then, you know, give yourself a break too. You're doing the best you can, and it can be very hard to tell that point. And so the rules of kind of thumb that you might want to look for are, is it a big change in the child's behavior? You know, they, if it's a teenager, they seem like they were doing fine. And then all of a sudden they don't want to come out of their, uh, out of their room. So it's a big change that goes on for some period of time. And, you know, again, that's kind of amorphous. A good rule of thumb might be like a few weeks. Now that depends on the severity of the behavior. If it's, um, something more severe that you're seeing, like cutting, for example, again, if it's an older child or, um, you find drugs or substance use that you're, you know, concerned of of something more serious like that, then um, then it's always good to seek help. But the easiest thing I think for parents to remember is if you're worried and it crosses your mind, is something wrong here? Should I seek help? It can never be the wrong thing to reach out and ask a
0: professional. Mm -hmm. And like, I've got a couple of friends and they're We had this conversation a little while ago on discussing their child and it was something that sort of really triggered, like this sort of just sparked just randomly just then. Um, Their child, like he has issue, not an issue, he has sort of a big anxiety attacks a lot of the time, like frequently, but he doesn't want to talk to anyone. And he's in sort of coming into his teens now. And it was a very big conversation as to, okay, he should get help, but because he doesn't want to talk to anyone, how do you sort of tell a child that, okay, this is something that we do need to, especially when they're sort of understanding it as well? Yes.
1: It is an incredibly challenging situation, especially as you start to get into teenagers, because they start to have more autonomy. And even when you have little kids, you know, anyone who's ever tried to buckle a squirming child into a car seat who does not want to be there knows it is very hard to force anyone to do anything, regardless of their size. Um, certainly, as parents, when there are, as we were talking about before, Extreme circumstances. And so, for example, you're concerned that your child is going to hurt themselves or hurt others. There is drug use that's concerning. Those are cases where, you know, even if it is against the child's will, you want to take them in to get them help. That's why essentially I'm obviously most familiar with systems in the United States, but you can take a child into the emergency room involuntarily. So that is, of course, not the ideal situation. Ideally, what you want to do is to work with that child to help them think through what's going on in their life as well. And so um, this is not an uncommon problem in the clinic. And especially, you know, a lot of my work is in substance use. And um, and so there being ambivalence about do I want to make a change or I don't want to make a change is something that you know, clinicians deal with all the time when they're working with, so for example, individuals who are drinking too much or using other substances. And um, and so the way that it's approached, and this is the way that I, I um, talk to parents about working with their kids as they get older too, when you tell someone what to do, right, you need to exercise more. You really need to eat right. You need to fill in whatever the blank is. Even if the person agrees with you, that doesn't just mean they're going to do it. And very often as parents, we are telling our children what is best for them. And when there's ambivalence, right? So if our children are hanging around with a peer group that maybe even they recognize is not good for them, and you say, those you know those friends you're hanging around are no good well they might know that on some level but our natural reaction is to be defensive it's true you know we we sort of give the other case scenario so you know they the child would say but i need friends and you know if i don't have any friends i can't be all by myself you know then i'd be a nerd and no one would like me or even if we think of you know examples that might apply to all of us you know if someone says to you you should really work out more, then your natural reaction might be, yeah, but I have work and I don't have time in the morning because I've got the kids. And so they iterate all of the reasons why it doesn't work. The more that parents tell kids what they should be doing, the more kids tend to reiterate all of the reasons that that won't work. So, what we actually know is one of the best ways to get people to kind of change their perspective is to instead ask questions so that kids are generating not just the viewpoint that, you know, is opposite of what you want. You're not just getting the defensive reaction. So if, for example, you're worried about a child's friends, you know, you could say, so talk to me about your friends. What are the things that you like about this peer group? Right. What are the things that you don't like about them? And then they're generating it. Okay, you don't like that maybe, you know, they're pressuring you to do some things you're not comfortable with either. That's what I hear you saying. Yeah. Well, I wonder if there's a way that you could have friends that you're getting the things you like out of it, but you're not having that kind of pressure. Is there something that, you know, might work there? And then, so essentially, it's it's called problem. You know, it's it's called collaborative problem solving. As you get older, you want to work with your kids to generate. It. Aside from cases where you're concerned about, you know, imminent harm to your child or to another, or if there's substance use um, that's severe that you're worried about, really, what you want to do is collaborative problem solving. Working with your kids. Regardless of their age, little kids can do this too, right? Like what to generate a solution that will work for both of you. And so, you know, when when it comes to helping kids get on the same page for wanting to maybe get some help or figure out solutions, it's better when you involve them in the process as opposed to telling them what you think they should do.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a really good way. Like I think talking through it with them is a lot easier than just sort of telling them that this is what they're supposed to do. This is the next step in understanding because even if you are a parent, it's still it's still their life essentially, especially when they're at an age where they can sort of understand it themselves and they know that this is a this is something that I'm going through. So having that making it a conversation rather than a um method of, okay, this is what I'm telling you to do.
1: Absolutely. Because ultimately, the only person who can change their behavior is themselves. You know, (laughs) your child is the only one who can actually change their behavior. And so it's a matter of how do you get them on board with that and see the benefits to it Um, and doing that by empathizing with them. You know, and trying to understand where they're coming from is is one of the best ways to essentially achieve the effect that you want. Very often as parents, we default to this. Here's what you need to do. And here are the steps you need to do to get there and it turns out that's a really ineffective way to actually get anyone to follow those steps or to land in the place that you want. And sometimes if we imagine how we would feel if somebody said that to us, you know, it doesn't feel good if my husband says to me, "Oh, well, if you want to lose a few pounds, well, you know what you need to do. You need to get up and run more in the mornings and you need to eat less." Well, that doesn't inspire me to do those things, right? Yeah. And so very often we are defaulting to this um Formula that doesn't work very well as parents, so it's kind of shifting our mentalities too. Mm-hmm.
0: So this next part of um, of the segment is practice and habit. So, what is a practice that you do to improve children's behavior problems?
1: I think the number one thing that parents can do, and that I attempt to do as well. <laughs> it's not always easy but is to default to responding to your child with empathy and by that i mean very often when our kids are struggling when they're having behavioral challenges or emotional outbursts we respond to the behavior we see at hand um you know the that's not okay to hit that's not okay to yell you know that's not okay to throw a fit instead of trying to get at what is going on that's creating that behavior. Because when kids are acting out, often it's as scary to them as it is upsetting to us. And so to be able to respond, whether it is a teenager who's talking back to you, or whether it is a small child who is throwing a fit, That behavior does not naturally evoke empathy. And so it's really a learned skill to be able to take a breath and say, I can see you're really upset right now. What's going on? And obviously that conversation differs if you're talking to a three-year-old versus a 13-year-old, but that place of responding with empathy and trying to understand what's going on that's creating the behavior rather than responding to the Behavior, which is very frustrating and upsetting in the moment, um, is is I think one of the most
0: important skills that parents can develop.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What are some of the challenges that take place when trying to reply with an empathy?
1: Oh, it is hard, right? Like <laughs> snotty teenagers and um you know kids who are hitting or throwing fits, they do not evoke empathy. <laughs> they do not bring out the best in you. And uh so it really is I think a learned skill. Particularly if you are somebody who is quick to temper or quick to get upset and we know these things are genetically influenced. So often kids that are have really big feelings have parents who might have really big feelings, too. So it can be even harder. Um, But, but that's why it really, you know, essentially getting in that mindset of when I feel you know, my blood pressure rising, I'm going to take a deep breath. And I'm going to my mantra is going to be respond with empathy, respond with empathy, you know, they're as upset as I am. Um, it's, It's not easy, but it is also much more effective and actually getting the child to stop and calm down in the moment too. Mm -hmm.
0: And when you say, so reply with empathy, do you sort of, is it best to walk away from the situation for the moment or is that sometimes even more volatile when talking to children?
1: It depends on you and your child, mm-hmm. and so if you find that you can't respond with empathy in the moment, and trust me, I know lots of situations, and I have been in them with kids where I am too wound up, or they're being, you know, um, too too nasty that that it's it feels impossible in the moment, and you can always say. I'm feeling really upset right now, and I need to take a minute, right, and walk away. Well, when my son was little, I used to try and do that because I would feel myself getting riled up when he was throwing a big fit, and I would say, Mommy needs a minute. I'm feeling very upset. And he would literally follow me down the hall to my bedroom and be beating on the bedroom door saying, "Come out, come out." Right? So, it actually that was not helping to diffuse the situation. And so what I found instead is, okay, if I can in the moment say, you know, "I see you're really upset and I'm going to sit here with you for a minute while we both calm down." That, was, that worked much better with my son. Um, you know, some, for some parent-child pairs, it does work to say, I need to walk away for a minute. And we can talk about this when we're both feeling calmer, right? And so, you know, I mean, that's true of some adult relationships too, right? Sometimes you can do it in the moment and sometimes you realize you actually need a little time for, um, it takes about 30 minutes for when kids are really wound up for their, you know, adrenaline levels to come back down and that sort of like brain fog of being so upset to clear. And so sometimes it is good to take a little breather and then um, and then regather. But mm-hmm. if that makes the child more upset, then you might actually need to practice, you know, kind of sitting with your own breath and calming
0: down with your child too. How do you think this has impacted your parenting or your perception in life as a whole, as you've sort of made this a ongoing practice?
1: I was raised with what I think was much more common of many folks in my generation, which was much of a, you know, a a parenting style that was more, you know, you behave in this way, or there are consequences. I mean, I have loving, wonderful parents and I'm very close to them. And I think I went into parenting thinking much more, you know, if a child is misbehaving, then they need to learn that's not acceptable. And, you know, this and then I had this highly emotional child, right, who uh, when I attempted to clamp down on the behavior in the moment, it just made it worse. And so I certainly have learned um, and it's uh, been been a journey for me even in this field. But one of the things that I think is so wonderful and one of my you know favorite stories with my son is that the more you practice it with them, the more that they are also learning those skills, you're, you're both learning them together, right? Mm-hmm. And so one evening, I remember I was had tucked my son into bed and I was trying to shut his closet door and it was kind of on little wheels and we live in an old historic house and it kept coming off the track and I couldn't get the closet door shut. And, you know, I'm increasingly getting frustrated and I'm pushing the door and pushing the door. And finally, my son, I hear this little toddler voice from the bed say, Mommy, you look really frustrated. Maybe you should just step away and take a little break for a minute. And I thought, oh, he's 100 percent right. And he's getting it right. He learns and he's like reminding me in the moment, too. And uh, so, so yes, I think it's a beautiful thing. I always tell parents, you know, like, don't be afraid to own when you make a mistake. It shows you're human. And just like your child is making mistakes all the time and you're, you know, working with them, it's good for them to see you make mistakes too. And it's okay. You apologize for them. You learn, you practice your skills. It's a beautiful thing for kids to actually see that role modeled too. hmm
0: Uh, So we've got, we've gathered up some questions from an audience on the topic and um, yeah, so the first question is sometimes if feeling tired, it's hard to keep calm and not to be annoyed or overreact when children display difficult behaviors. What should you do in that in that situation? Yes, and I
1: remember bedtimes at my house were always the worst because I was tired, you know, children are tired. And uh, so we know that no one is at their best when they're, you know, essentially tired, hungry, right? It makes it much harder for our kids and for us to regulate our behavior. And I think that the best thing that one can do in that moment, because there are inevitably many times that we're going to be tired and we're probably going to grump at our children, right? Um, And we might not be our best parenting selves. So we can both practice what we talked about, essentially just saying, you know what, I'm really tired right now and I'm feeling frustrated. You know, let's both take a little breath right now. Um, but there's going to be times where we are going to snap at our children. And I think those are the times that then when you are feeling a little less tired and a little a uh, clearer mind, it's totally fine to say, you know what, I'm sorry I snapped at you yesterday. I was feeling really tired and it's not an excuse, but I'm going to try and do better, right? Just like sometimes you get tired or hungry and you get grumpy, I was being grumpy last night. So we'll both work on it together. And that's okay, right? That's part of parenting.
0: <laughs> How should we explain to children about their behavior and that some, some behaviors need to be changed? Yes.
1: So many times children will recognize that their behavior is having adverse consequences, that it's causing problems. But many kids have what we sometimes call a hostile attribution bias. And what that means is that some kids, you know, will interpret the random soccer ball that, you know, it gets kicked into them as a That child, you know, meant to do that. And so hence, I am justified in running over and kicking the child or hitting the child or pushing him to the ground or whatever I did. Um, And so they see it as a justified action Um, or, you know, well, yes, I threw a fit, but I was really, really upset. And so I think some of the things that we can do as parents is to help our kids Both see that there can be multiple angles of looking at something. And so, you know, when the soccer ball gets kicked into you and you think, well, they did that on purpose. And hence, I was justified to think, well, you know, maybe it was an accident. Is it possible it was an accident or the person who walked by you and didn't say hi in the hall and now you're really upset about it? gosh, what are some other explanations, right? That we, the way we interpret things is just one guess as to what's going on. What are other guesses as to what might have happened? So that they can start to see, okay, there might be more at play here that you know maybe means I don't need to immediately get really upset or really hurt or really anxious about the situation. That, of course, can work better with older kids. Um, with younger kids... I think that helping them see, hey, this behavior, you know, it's not helpful, right? Um, And the reality is even young kids, they often recognize that, right? It's more of a, in the moment, they are so upset. And the reality is, as parents, we often have what's called an expectation gap. Meaning, we think our kids have more ability to regulate their emotions and their behavior at each developmental stage than the neuroscience shows us that those brains actually can consistently do. And so it's like, if they've done it once, you know, then it's like, well, they should be able to do it all the time. Well, that's not how brain development works. And so the idea that your child's never, if you have a child, especially who's quick to, you know, getting upset about things, the idea that they're just suddenly going to stop that behavior is unrealistic. So helping them see, okay, when you feel that way, what are some ways that we can control it? Right. And to show them, I see you're really upset. This is the responding with empathy, responding to like the underlying what's going on. And so we're just going to sit here for a minute and till you can calm down. Right. Or if you're in a public place, we're going to move over to this place. I'm not punishing you for throwing a fit. I know you're really upset, but I just need to let's go to a place where we can both be safe and we can take a minute while you're working through these big feelings, right? For little kids, um, so those are some ways that you can kind of help kids of different ages learn to manage those behaviors.
0: Mm-hmm. Saying with saying that, how would you handle a child's moody, constant moody behavior?
1: I'm sorry, a child's constant what?
0: Moody behavior. So they're sort of their emotions are always up and down. They're always. Um, Just not feeling chipper all the time. Yes. And the reality is, depending on the child's
1: age, you know, especially in adolescence, a lot of that is normative. Kids are, we know, trying to figure out who they are. And there is a lot of weight placed on peers. And so, depending on the you know, whether their interactions with their peers or, you know, the boy or the girl they think is cute was good or bad that day, there can be a lot more up and down. And as parents, I think, you know, recognizing that it's it's not personal, right? When they're upset and then they're grumping at you, right? Like they have their own up and downs. It's okay to say, you know, to set boundaries, to say, hey, I understand that you're upset, but we don't, call names in this house or, you know, whatever those boundaries might be. Um, But to recognize that some of that is normative. Now, when it gets to the place where, some, re- returning back to some of the things we talked about, if you're worried that it seems very extreme, or if you're worried that they've really been blue for a while, or that their mood seems different than what it usually is, you usually do have a pretty happy-go-lucky child, and now all of a sudden they seem very upset for a period of time. Those are things to actually be concerned about and to reach out to a professional to start you know, thinking about like, wow, should we get some extra help here? But a lot of the up and down in kids, um, both in little kids as they're kind of learning to control their behavior and emotions, and in adolescence as they're trying to figure out and navigate kind of newfound independence and all the changes going on in their lives, A lot of that is actually like normal. And so learning how to weather it, again, this is our having our own self-care practices as parents is so critical.
0: Uh, So these next two questions are kind of on the, they're on the step-parent aspect of it. So the first off, how do you sort of discipline a child's behavior as a step-parent? So
1: I am part of a blended family, and so I do have a stepdaughter as well. So this is something that um, is, you know, is a part of my life, too. The reality with blended families is that that's really a conversation that you want to have with your parenting partner in terms of, Um, what are the expectations, uh, for the step parent to discipline that child? What, um, what, what does the other perhaps biological parent who is, you know, not in the home, but obviously they have a say kind of on what the role of the step parent will be. And so really, there's not a right answer to that question. The answer is talking to your partner. And of course, it depends on the disposition of the child as well, too, about, what your role is going to be, because ultimately what you want to do is find something whereby you have a relationship with the child and you have talked in advance about how you are going to handle it if the child is with you and there is a you know, behavioral or emotional outburst, how that other parent wants to handle it. If you have different ideas about how you're going to handle it, talking through those differences and kind of coming to a compromise or a solution that works for both of you. I know that many blended families have different ways of handling that. And by the way, that's also true of intact families as well, too, that very often you have parents with different, you know, um, parenting styles or disciplinary styles. And so mm-hmm. I actually have a whole chapter in my book about, um, you know, predispositions and partners, meaning how do you work with, you know, your parenting partner Even when you have different ideas maybe about your children, be be they step or biological children, how do you start to work through those differences and kind of how do you have a plan to get to a solution? So if that's something you're interested in, there's actually kind of some steps in the book that one can follow with their parenting partner to kind of navigate some of those differences.
0: Mm And. What are some strategies on helping children with abandonment issues, say like dropping them off at childcare or at daycare? How do you deal with that? Yes. So, uh...
1: Many of the kids in my my family have all dealt with anxiety and school refusal, and you know, being very afraid to be dropped at school and those kind of things. So that is something you know, near and dear. We've had a lot of experience with in our family as well, too. And I'll just mention, I know that that can be one of the most heart wrenching things for a parent because what should be a simple thing, dropping your child off at daycare or at school you know, when you have a child who's screaming, kicking, refusing to get into the car, refusing to get out of the car, you know, uh, my heart goes out to you. I've been in those shoes before and I know how, you know, wrenching it can feel. Um, Working with somebody, many times schools have um, staff, or you can talk to psychologists or whatnot to help come up with a plan for your child. If there is school refusal or, you know, there's so much anxiety around drop-off that kids are getting very upset when they are at school. And, um, and so often what that involves is kind of baby steps, right? So you're going to, for kids who are more anxious about it, you're going to talk to them beforehand, of course. And you're going to talk about, you know, mom or dad or the babysitter or whomever is going to be there, you know, to pick you up at X time. And, you know, we always do. And But for kids who are more anxious, often that that isn't enough. And sometimes the idea of being dropped at school for a long period of time can be you know, so anxiety provoking that that's when you're starting to get school refusal and things. And so usually what it what it um, entails is working with the school and coming up with a plan for essentially how you're going to step your child into feeling more comfortable with being at school for the day. And so that could look like things like maybe you stay, uh, and it'll vary depending on the age of your child and the setup of the school, of course, but it could be things like maybe you stay for the first hour, right? And the teacher is okay with you stay and you can play with your child there, you know, maybe in the office or whatnot, then they feel more comfortable. And now they're more excited to go into the classroom, or maybe at first you then are sitting at the edge of the classroom, you know, and so you can essentially baby step them in and it will depend on the child and how anxious they are into exposing them to being at school and being away from you in smaller doses that that slowly increase until they can be there all day. And sometimes that is maybe you can get to the point where like you stop by and you visit at lunch and and you even take the child home for the last half because it's like, okay, they made it for the first part of the day. But now, you know, if you make it through the first part and then you can go from visiting them at lunch to being like, OK, it's just a visit at lunch and they can stay through the whole day. So these are some of the different strategies that we've implemented um, as, you know, as as we've had, you know, several of my nieces and nephews and uh, and our own children work through some of those challenges.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's actually a really good advice to sort of the baby step through it all because it's not it's not an easy thing dealing with especially if a child has social anxiety, it is the biggest thing in the world. It
1: is. And it's essentially like uh, for children that are more anxious like that, it's like throwing them into the deep end of the pool and saying, swim. And they just aren't ready yet. And so, you know, if you think that analogy through, you would start with putting them in swimmies and holding them in the, you know, shallow end. So they get used to the water and then they can maybe be in swimmies by themselves without you holding them. Right. And then they can slowly walk a little deeper in the water and then they learn their, you know, swim strokes until they can slowly make it into the deep end. So you figure out what are the steps that are going to work for your child and for your school for easing them into the things that they're afraid of being at school alone without you. Mm hmm.
0: Um, during this last few minutes, we'd love to give you a chance to talk about anything that you're passionate about. It does not have to be anything related to the topic, just something that it could be a project that you're currently doing or something that you feel you would love to share with the audience. So, yep, over to you. <laughs> sure. So one of the things that we haven't talked much
1: about today because we've been talking about kids and behavior problems which is you know a topic near and dear to my heart but something else that i work on is i do a lot of work on substance use disorders and so i often talk to a lot of parents of teenagers who are now starting to worry about that next phase of oh my gosh you know what rules do i set surrounding alcohol and other drugs and you know is my child going to be at risk and i so often have parents say to me i wish i could know if my child was the one who was going to develop problems and what i frequently say to parents is good news you can have some idea because many of the things that put kids at risk for the things we worry about as they get older, you know, substance use problems, risky sex, you know, all of those kind of things that essentially... These traits don't just suddenly show up one day. If we're thinking about what puts somebody at risk for substance use disorders, then it's you know the way our brains process risk and reward. it's are they more anxious? and then substances come onto the scene and they start using substances to self-medicate. And so the very things we've talked about, essentially kids who are more emotional and who are more impulsive and who have more behavior problems, you know, when they're younger, By addressing these things earlier, we also are doing great things to set our kids up for success for things like substance use down the line, because some of the biggest risk factors and predictors of subsequent substance use and substance use problems are ADHD. And so if you have a really impulsive child, you can know, okay, if I work on helping them come up with strategies to manage risk, right? To essentially manage their and regulate their behavior. They'll be able to use those same strategies Now, when alcohol and other drugs come onto the scene, if you have a child who's more emotional or more anxious or more prone to depression, if you can help them learn skills to navigate that, then they're less likely to now when alcohol and other drugs come onto the scene, use those things to self-medicate. And so I just want to throw in there that if you are a parent who is now in that phase where you're thinking about things like, ooh, substance use and worrying about that phase, that actually... These very things that we've talked about with little kids, um, that working on those and helping your kids learn strategies to manage um, those challenges will actually be really important in also setting them up for success and warding off some of these other things that we start to
0: worry about when they get older. That's that's actually really interesting because it's really hard to sort of have that conversation with a child. And for them to be completely honest, because there's going to be some things that they're also, they know that you're not going to approve of. So they're not going to tell you everything that they're doing. Yes. How would you actually get them to sort of be a bit more truthful?
1: It's a great question. And so what I tell parents all the time is, you want to start these conversations early and have them often. And so by that, I mean talking about the big things, right? Like sex or alcohol and other drugs, the things that parents like dread having those conversations with their kids, or if they have them, attempts to be in a directive way, right? Like don't have sex before you're married or, you know, don't have unprotected sex or don't use drugs. All of the things that we talked earlier about as very ineffective parenting communication styles, right? Um, Instead, these very things that if you start them, you know, if you start developing this relationship with your child from a young age, so by responding with empathy, by showing your child, hey, we can talk through these things, right? We're going to collaboratively problem solve, whether that is when they're young, dealing with behavior problems or emotional outbursts. Um, but also, when it comes to things like, um, as they're starting to get older, and of course you'll weave in these things as age appropriate. But um, but essentially, you know, when you're thinking about talking with your kids about sex, well, when they're little, there's easy ways to introduce, you know, body parts, and kids are interested. They're taking baths. They're discovering bodies are different. To have those conversations from the time they're young. That then, as they get older, it doesn't feel like, oh my gosh, my parent is suddenly, you know, I'm 13 or 15, and my parent is now suddenly talking to me about body parts and sex. If you've had those conversations, again, in age appropriate ways from the time that they are little, they're much more comfortable with it. And similarly, you wanna start having those conversations. There's lots of ample opportunities to start talking to kids about alcohol, or now, of course, you know, A big one is increasing legalization of marijuana. And so that's more on the scenes now. And so easy ways to do it are when you are watching movies together, you know, and they'll show a bunch of teenagers at a party who are, you know, drinking or who are vaping or who are smoking. And you can say, you know, hey, do you know of any you want to always ask questions, right? You know, you don't want to dictate. You want to ask questions. Do you have kids at your school who smoke or who vape or who, you know, drink or who are doing other drugs? What do you think about that? And, you know, so you want to start that dialogue very young. As they get older, then you also, again, it's important to set boundaries. In our family, here are going to be the rules. And if those rules are broken, here are going to be the consequences. But you want to be able to have that dialogue with your child where they feel comfortable talking to you about things and the best way to do that is to talk to them about things not at them but ask them questions starting from an early time
0: no and i think that is an incredible way of doing it just to make sure that it's not so it's not telling them okay i know that you're doing something but it's just sort of leaving an impression like, okay, there are some things that you could be doing or that is available for you to do. But remember that you have to make your own decision as to not to do them. I
1: always told my son, you can ask me anything because if you ask your friends They'll tell you something and it might not be right. You can ask me anything and I promise you, I will be honest with you about the answer. And if I don't know the answer, we'll go look it up together. And um, he has definitely then held me to that, right? Meaning, and the other eye-opening thing as a parent is I remember driving him home and he was in third grade and he was in the far back of the car and he said, mom, remember when you said I could always ask you something and you would tell me the truth? And you're thinking, oh, here it comes. And I said, yes, of course. And he asked me a question about sex. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I would have never thought third graders were already talking about you know these particular things. But I think it just to me, it really brought home the point that when you've had conversations about body parts and, you know, you know, when he was little, of course, he knows his mom studies biology and genetics. And so, you know, we knew all about sperm and eggs and genetics and how babies, you know, like where they they were formed and all of that kind of stuff that they don't think of it as a taboo talk topic. Now, at 16, does he want to, you know, tell me all of the details about his romantic relationships? No. But do we still have a very open Communication style, and we can talk about things and what's going on at school. Yes. And the bottom line is, as kids get into their teenage years, to your point, some experimentation is going to be normal, right? And so, recognizing that and having had the conversations and having set the boundaries and consequences beforehand is a good thing. And in addition, It's also normal for kids to want to have some more private things from you as they are growing up and coming into their own. And that's okay, too. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think this is a perfect way to sort of sum up everything that we've spoken about today and talking about children and understanding them a bit more, even from early ages to when they're teenagers and to conclude everything, I think it's important to um, talk with your child. Definitely have, those, have the communication open. Um, I think, like you said, don't dictate things to them. Let them sort of put that, the feeler out there themselves and say, okay, this is what they're talking about now. Um, yeah, so is there anything final that you would love to tell the audience?
1: Sure. So I am really passionate about getting the research out to parents. And so if you are interested in learning more, um, you can find more on my website at danielledick.com. Or you can find out more about the book at thechildcode.com if you're interested in figuring out your own child's temperament and then learning about what parenting strategies um, work best for your particular child's temperament. Um, I also write for Medium and for Psychology Today, and you can find me on social media at Dr. Danielle Dick, where I put out a variety of resources on kids' behavior, all the way from young kids through teenagers.
0: Okay, well, that's amazing. So if you guys want to learn more from Danielle, definitely go and look at her website. And if you want to get into contact with her, go through, through there as well and The book does sound amazing. It definitely sounds like it's something that does need to be spoken about and it is important to have those conversations, Um, especially when talking about the modern-day parent. And it is very hard to sort of describe what a modern-day parent is because it comes in so different forms. But, yeah, definitely go and check out the book. It definitely sounds like an amazing, amazing discovery to have. Um, Yeah, thank you so much, Danielle, for coming on today and talking to us about this. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.